Hi, it's Eric. I produced the show. What you're about to hear is a re-release of an episode from May of 2019 titled Freewheeling with Sarah and Jen, We're Big Mad. While I can personally assure you that Sarah and Jen have never ceased to be big mad, we believe this week is a good time to re-release this episode. But before we start, we want to provide some information and resources. These are by no means complete. As always, you can find everything discussed here and more in the show notes. First and foremost, Planned Parenthood and the National Network of Abortion Funds. These organizations are extremely important. They provide all matters of support to anyone who needs access to abortion. We hear a lot about organizations like this, and for good reason, but they're just a piece of the puzzle. Another piece of the puzzle is organizations like The 19th, a nonprofit news org that focuses on women, women of color, and the LGBTQ community. There's lots of great stuff to read there. Another great bit to read is Charlotte Shane's piece in Gawker titled Stop Being Stupid About Abortion. On the political front, find and support local and state politicians that not only support but advance abortion rights. Take a look at the Future Now Fund, which focuses exclusively on flipping state legislatures. The states are the whole ballgame. Also on the politics front, faded states will be reactivated soon, so keep your eyes peeled for the bat signal. Laws like the one in Texas are designed not just to eliminate rights, but to erode community and isolate those who need them most. Giving money to politicians and organizations is important, but none of it matters if we don't also stand with women of color, low-income women, undocumented women, anyone else who can get pregnant, and people who assist with abortion. We can and should work together to ensure all people who need an abortion can safely access one. To wrap things up, I'll leave you with a quote from Dr. Jennifer Gunther. Not saying a word implies it is shameful. It's abortion rights. It's contraceptive rights. And now here's the episode. Yeah, I'm big mad. So <laughs> this is so we're. <laughs> I told Eric that we would have a that we were we were having a late addition to the <laughs> to the podcast schedule this week. Um, I told Daryl the same thing. I was like, "Look, so I'm recording tonight," and he's like, "Only one episode." I was like, "Yes, it will be roughly 800 hours long." <laughs> I know you'll never see me my, again. My fury will not be contained. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Body autonomy, Jennifer. Mm. All a girl wants. <laughs> I'm just a girl standing in front of the world, asking for you to get your hands out of my uterus. You know, I used to say, like, my uterus a lot. Like, people be like, why do you... I'm like, my uterus, right? Like, just... And I think back then there were some men in my life who thought it was, like, charming or funny. They're afraid of it now. I'm like, did you think I was kidding, motherfucker? (laughs) Get your hands out of my fucking uterus. Yeah. Well, Victoria Dahl had this great tweet today about hysteria and how hysteria is the truth that they... Always, they always spoke of, but never really wanted to see. <laughs> and I was like, that feels right to me today, Victoria. Yeah. So, you guys, the world is aflame again. It's 2019. So, like, again, still. I was on the subway today and someone said to me, <laughs> I just sometimes wonder, like, am I drinking tea on the Titanic? And is it before or after we hit the iceberg? <laughs> and I was like, 
this is all fair. Yeah, it's how it feels, right? There's a thing that we talk about at school where it's like, like the bomb face, right? Like something goes so wrong that you just have that like thousand yard stare. Mm -hmm. And I feel like at some point, uh, it's like me and every woman I know, and I like can. I just want to say, like, I I think a lot about like the women who live in states where this they're on the front lines. Yeah. So wait, I think we should. You probably know by now what we're talking about and who we are. If not, this is going to be a crash landing <laughs> into faded <laughs> mates with Sarah and Jen. Um, I'm Sarah McLean. I write romance novels. I read romance novels. I like to talk about romance novels. Yeah, and I'm Jennifer Prokop, and I am, well, I talk about romance on Twitter, and I'm a teacher, and I basically believe that it's nobody's business what's going on in anybody's uterus. Yeah, I got it. I agree. Can I just co-sign that? And are we done now? Four minutes in. That's where we stand. Here's here's where I think we came up with this idea is Well we it should was say kinda, it's uh what date is it? It's uh May. It's it's May something, fifteenth? No, sixteenth, I the think. Sixteenth, but yesterday was May fifteenth and um some real shitty laws uh were passed in or a law was was passed in Alabama um regarding abortion. And, well, and by the time you hear this, which which should be next Wednesday, the twenty second it might be that these laws have passed in Missouri and in Michigan. In I mean, like these are laws that are like making their way through states. Um, yeah, controlled. states are coming for right. Roe. Yeah, the Republicans are coming for Roe, and uh, Jen and I are big mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I think the way that we're always both interested in talking about things is like how does romance, which, um is like a genre we both profoundly love. Like help us understand like where women are, where women have been and what our future will be. Um kind of in a relationship like with our bodies. And I think that um you know, one thing like we really want to be sensitive for sure. I I think there's a lot of like if you know, if men could be pregnant, there'd be you know, like abortion kiosks at every Walgreens or whatever. And we're not looking to be that, like, I think it that's language is really trans exclusionary. Right. But at the same time, we were really interested in talking about, um, like, how do you talk about this without talking about gender? Yeah. Well, I want to acknowledge that yeah. trans men are extra terrified right now and have every right oh, to yeah. be. And I think, um, you know, I said earlier today to somebody, at, this is a conversation that needs to be had about every person with a uterus. And so I, I think both of us just want to set that set that out at the start. Um, but this is going to, it's it's t- a tough conversation to have without using gendered yeah. language. So language, forgive us right. for... We want to be sensitive to it, and we want our listeners to be sensitive to it, too. And so it's a, like, mea culpa in advance. We're going to try to do our best. But we, like, really welcome feedback, I guess, from, um, for like, it's important to us to be inclusive. But it's also, like, a conversation that's so tied into the way gender and women's bodies and, like, actual, like, physical parts um, are are seen in the world and perceived in the world that it's hard to imagine that we won't. Like, we, we're just going to do our best, everybody. But we're also, 
I think it's urgent to talk about it, especially in romance, because as we've talked about many, many weeks, this is the place where, um, like, the interior life of a woman is really, like, the most fully developed. And for, for I think, every woman, these concerns about, um, like, our reproductive organs and how they sometimes feel like they betray us (laughs) is one that I think is um, we're really interested in talking about. Yeah. So this episode is going to be different than all of our other episodes. It's still going to have a lot of books in it where we encourage you to get a pen. Um, Show notes will be extensive, but we're going to talk about bodies and, and the, the female body and the parts of it um, and the things that happen inside us um, and the reasons why romance has always um, seemed to be a place where that's a safe conversation um, and a safe dialogue um, for us to have. But uh, a big, the big, I think, reason why we're doing this this week is because yesterday um, I asked on Twitter for people to um, hive mind a list of romances where in which the heroine has a abortion, has an abortion um, in without shame, um, and uh, I think we got what like fifteen books, um, and I think that is the thing that we should talk about. So we're going to talk about, so content warning, we're going to obviously talk about abortion. Um, we're going to talk about miscarriage. We're going to talk about stillbirths. We're going to talk about contraception. Um, what else are we going to talk about? My rage. A lot of rage. You guys asked for it. See, be careful what you wish for <laughs> listeners. Um, so where do you want to begin? You want to begin with Fanny, Fanny Hill. Fanny Hill, Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure, um, which is an erotic novel um, written in 1748. Don't don't be expecting this to be like Sierra Simone style. Uh, <laughs> I um, actually am really curious to read it in the light of that like statement. I'm like a little levity. Wikipedia calls it an erotic novel. That's what I have open in front of me because I wanted all the dates in front of me. Um, it's written by a man named John Cleland, um, and it was published, a serialized, so it, Jen would have loved Ooh, it. on brand. Um, in uh, 1748. I did not know this. So 1748, I'm going to repeat that because holy crap. I did not know this, but um, John Cleland wrote it while he was in debtor's prison. And it is considered, I'm now just reading from Wikipedia, but it is considered the first original English prose pornography and the first pornography to use the form of the novel. It is one of the most banned books in history, um, but is considered by many, including Maya Rodale, to be um, a primordial romance novel. to use a Cressley Cole term. Uh, I actually love that. I love calling it a primordial romance novel. I mean, I, and I think it probably is. Um, so Fanny May, uh, Fanny May, that's, uh, that <laughs> is where you get your college loans from, which is a different rage. Is it Fanny May or <laughs> Sally May? I don't know. 
Anyway, doesn't matter. Maybe we'll skip all that. <laughs> so we're never good with titles. How is that not on brand for us? Um, there are there are a lot of editions. If you can find an edition of Fanny Hill with illustrations, they're super graphic. And also, you can go on Wikipedia, and there are several very graphic illustrations. Um, so you know, enjoy yourselves. Enjoy yourselves. So okay, um, she writes letter. There, it's written. It's epistolary. Um, she is telling her own story to um, a to to. Uh, the recipient of two letters and it's basically Fanny's life account and I'm not going to get too deep into it but essentially her parents die um, and she goes to London and she gets lured into a brothel and it's the story of sort of uh, the her life in the brothel and the reason why we're bringing up Fanny Mae um, Fanny Mae, god damn it <laughs> <laughs> bringing up Fanny Hill is because, um, like, ultimately she gets married to Charles the hero, um, and so that's why we call it a primordial um, romance novel. It does end with Fanny in happiness. Um, There's warning a whole lot of, like, problematic representation of (laughs) prostitutes in this book. It was written in the 1740s. And it can be, like, very preachy about that. So, obviously, you know, consider the date of publication. Um, Fun fact. I'm going to retcon this that, like, Sarah from Dreaming of You, that that's what she wrote. That, I think she is. Matilda, right? I'm sure that's probably what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, There is a lot of, just to talk about, like, etymology for a second, there is some discussion that the reason why, like, you can call it, like, some people call a vagina a fanny is because of Fanny Hill. Um, So, you know, fun facts. Just fun little, you know, Historical facts. But Fanny, importantly, um, spends a lot of time in a brothel, um, working in a brothel, um, where she loses her virginity. There's a bisexual madam, I want to say, in this book. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of sex in all different forms and all different places. Um, And there are a lot of prostitutes who have to terminate pregnancies. And they do it on the page. And Fanny sort of articulates how it's done. It's not super graphic, if I... You know, and if I recall correctly, um, sure. But it is like abortion is on the page in this book because, of course, it is. Contraception is on the page in this book because, of course, it is. And it's 1750. So let's set aside this idea that any of this is new, because, as I've said multiple times ad nauseum over the last few days, like women have been dealing with unwanted pregnancies. Yeah since pregnancy began. Sure. And you know what? It's really interesting because I feel like, and you and I were chatting about this before we started recording, that I'm pretty sure like my first introduction to abortion was like women in historical romances, like somebody knew somebody who knew the right cup full of tea to drink. Yep. Right. And and even though I can't name specific ones, like I just feel like I I imprinted on that idea that there was like there was a woman somewhere in the village who knew how to take care of this business. Yeah. And and that's who you went to see. I mean, and she was a midwife, right? Yeah. Because so one of the things that we talk about all the time, you and I, and I, I mean I'm sure we talked about it here, but like the romance novel from its very origins has been a place where, at the beginning, 
a subset of women, right? Like written for women, white women, white yeah, cis right. women, right? Um, right? We're able to have a dialogue in us in an enclosed space away from the prying eyes of patriarchy, right? Yeah. So, and we've talked about this over time as um, romance has become more inclusive of marginalized people. It has become the literature of happiness and joy and hope and happily ever after. Right. And now in 2019, that's a political act. And it was frankly a political act. It's always been a political act, right? For marginalized sure. people to live happily. Women have been marginalized as a block. Yeah. Forever. Um, And so I think what's really interesting here is that when we talk about pregnancy on the page um, and we talk about abortion on the page, you and I both have the same experience, which is when we were young and we were reading those historical romances, um, it was a midwife in the village who was in charge of birthing children and Mm -hmm. taking care of it if you didn't want one. Um, And I don't just mean abortion. I mean, like, contraception, too. Like, it was midwives who had tinctures and tonics and teas. And I'm the same way, Jen. Like, I'm pretty sure that I didn't, that my first understanding of abortion came from romance novels. Like, that, like, there was a trick to not getting pregnant. Yeah. And this was something in pop culture for me. That moment was the movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Mm-hmm. Now, it came out in 1982, and I did not see it then. I would have been too young. But at some point, like, later on, right? I mean, I was I was 10 then, right? It's, or 9 or 10 or whatever. At some point later on, I saw it, and there's this, like, really matter-of-fact, like, scene where the brother essentially takes you know, takes this, his sister in to the clinic and she gets an abortion and that's that. But I would say like those to me, but like really that, that didn't even stick out to me the way, like the romance novel and the sense that like women took care of each other in these moments was like really powerful for me. Mm -hmm. Like I, I often remember it, although you have an example we're going to talk about. I have a really interesting example. Yeah. Yeah. But for me, it was like, Women, you know, it was like a woman went to another woman or, like, whispered among the maids. Like, somebody knew who this person was. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, like, one of the most powerful, like, romances I've read with a miscarriage is called The Mayor's Mission by Piper Hughley, where she actually experiences a – she has a miscarriage. And Virgil, who's the hero, is kind of, like, wanting to help Mandy, his wife, and – He's, like, sort of, like, told by the, like, essentially the the midwife in, in their village, like, this is women's business. Mm-hmm. And I think that the reason it stuck out to me is because that very much felt, like, I, I felt that, right? When mm-hmm. that midwife says that to Virgil, this is women's business. That even though we I feel differently about it today in terms of, like, how men and reproduction things happen, that ultimately that was my, how I imprinted on this idea. I mean, I think that it's, certainly I feel differently. It, uh, it's complicated. That's basically complicated, what, that should be right. the show title of this. It's complicated. Yeah. So I just turned 40, and, like, my body's doing all sorts of weird shit. And, like, <laughs> I think about all the ways that, like, I, something strange happens, and I think to myself, like, oh, is that normal? Like, is that is this just a thing that happens now? And I don't, like, say anything to my husband. I 
call my right. friends or I ask my yeah. sister or like I I sort of reference it in passing to someone who is, you know, has the same right. parts as me. And I say like, hey, has this ever happened to you? And then suddenly you have these moments where you're like, oh, wait, that has happened to me. And we yeah. never, women, I, just, I think all the time about Emily Nagoski's um, Come As You Are. So mm-hmm. um, Emily writes, Emily's amazing right now. She's, she's sort of everywhere in romance because she, she wrote these wonderful contemporary romances under the name Emily Foster. The first one is called How Not to Fall. And the second is called How Not to Let Go. It's a duology. You have to read both, but they're both published. Um, and, um, and there, and she's, but she's also a, a sex educator, um, and it has a PhD in human sexuality. Oh, wow. First of all, um, you want to know who writes a hot, hot, hot sex scene? Somebody Mm -hmm. with a PhD in human sexuality. Like, yeah. (laughs) Emily's first book, nonfiction book, um, written as Emily Nagoski, is called Come As You Are. And it's basically like a informational guide to, like, women and sex. And I bought it. And it taught me so much about, like, yeah. what's normal. Because no one yeah. sits women down and says, like, no. here's what sex is like. Here's what's normal. Here's what's not normal. Like, yeah, frankly, everything is kind of normal. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, so, and I think, and I read this book, and it was, like, a revelation for me. And I was 36 or 37, like way too. And I've been reading romance novels since I was 11. My God, like (laughs) it's something revelatory about like lady bits is the fact that I got to it at 36 or 37. I went to Smith. We spent a lot of time talking about lady bits there. Like, so anyway, I think a lot about that. And I think a lot about the fact that like romance has always for me been a place where like women's issues can be discussed without, um, without fear or shame, without fear, without shame. And also without like, with no shrouding, like there's no, like, you know, you can go to the woman in the, in the midwife and she will give you a tincture and it will take care of the business. I also have been reading romance since I was like, you know, a teen, a young teenager. And, but I went to Catholic schools and then I went mm. to a Catholic, I went to Villanova mm. and I, that is the opposite of Smith, I would guess. The, uh, yeah. <laughs> In fact, I still have very vivid memories and I don't remember her name. So, you know, I can't name shame, but I remember meeting girls on my floor, my freshman year of college who like literally didn't really even understand why they got a period. Jesus Christ. And I just remember being like, what in the fuck are you doing? Like, what if we, and this was, you know, a long time ago, because I'm 45. And I, I think, I think a lot about like abstinence only education and right. Like one of the things I, I think a lot about is even though it is not the job of romance to teach sex ed, we are fooling ourselves if we don't understand that many, many readers are are learning about sex, yes. literally learning yes. through this genre. Yes. And that is, that's a responsibility, I think, that we, like, you can't. Absolutely. Yeah. You're a hundred percent right. And I mean, that's not, we didn't have a different, we don't, that's not different between us. Like, I learned about sex yeah. from romance novels without oh, sure. question. And <laughs> yeah. I've told the story before that I read all 
Bertree Smalls All the Sweet Tomorrows when I was like 14. And I was like, oh shit, I'm going to get in trouble if my parents see that I'm reading this. <laughs> you know, I mean, I had lactation yeah. porn and it was, you know, a ride. <laughs> but the, um, but so yeah, you're 100% right. And I do think like, I think romance in those early days didn't shy away from, like, interestingly, yes, it had purple prose, and yes, there was a lot of euphemism, and what the hell is a throbbing member, and, like, where did what go, and who's what? (laughs) Um, But at the same time, like, you know, Jane Feather's Vixen, um, which actually was published in 1996, so it's much later than I would have expected. So Jane Feather's Vixen, this is a real old-school one, you guys. The hero is just awful he's awful (laughs) it's guardian ward um and he's a real the hero's real bad um but like if you're into like really rough alphas who are impenetrable and ultimately end up like loving their ward it's you know solid choice if that's your old school (laughs) kink um but what's really interesting is so they have sex um He's drunk. He's, like, real drunk, and he comes home to his manor, and she's there, and um, he didn't. He doesn't know who she is. She's just, this, like, beautiful young woman in his house, and so, and he's super drunk, and they have sex, and, like, at, in the morning after, he's like, oh, shit, like, what have I done? Yeah. And he makes her a tonic and brings it to her and says and we'll put this image in show notes we'll put the quote in show notes it's an amazing thing it's honestly astounding because he basically says to her here is here he's like drink this like he is not a good dude and he's like drink this and she's like why and he's like because it will take care of any unforeseen problems from last night and she's like what problems and she, and he's like you're an idiot i think he calls her like a little fool and he's like you could be pregnant and she's like oh my god i didn't even think about that and she takes the drink and she knocks it back without hesitation like yeah she's like i don't want to be pregnant like I'm taking this in, I'm taking herbal plan B, like Jane Feather, like Regency plan B. Um, And it's, it's awesome. It's kind of a great scene. There are a lot of problems with this book, but right now, today I read that scene and I sent it, I sent a screenshot to Jen and I was like, this is fucking great. Like, yeah, he's like, and then she says, will it work? And he says, it'll work. And that's it. And it does work. She doesn't get pregnant. Like it's, it works. And like, what I found fascinating about that scene is it does go against type in the sense that he's the one who knows about it, right? Mm-hmm. He's taught, interestingly enough, he is taught how to make this herbal concoction by his first lover. Yeah. Well, and what's really interesting, though, is what is, though, to type is, and, and like, like the sort of virginal young heroine, I mean, who goes to this, who goes to a man's bed for the first time, having no fucking idea what's going to happen. And that's another thing I really vividly remember from 
like early romance, right? Especially historicals was, you know, it's your wedding night and, you know, they get some stumbling half-assed explanation, if that, yeah. about what's going to happen. You're you going to bleed. And then they yeah. end up, you know, Marlowe and <laughs> no good dude goes unpunished with like a gallon of pig's blood. Because how much? No idea, right? <laughs> no idea. And I mean, and I think I do remember being really fascinated by like by the the stories about like like women are like sent like lambs to the slaughter, right? Like they have no idea what's going to happen. And I just I find that fascinating still, right? Like how like much I imprinted on this idea that like women were there to teach each other because it was a woman, it was her mother or her sister who told her. And if she didn't have that, then she had to rely on the goodwill of her this partner. lover, right? Her partner. I texted with Lisa Kleypas earlier today because I could only think the one of the only romance novels I could think of where where I can name contraception on the page is um one of the Hathaway brother, one of the Hathaway books, um, Amelia and Cam at this point have already been married and Amelia doesn't want to get pregnant. And so she's taking this like herbal tea, which is basically mm-hmm. like she's drinking it every day. Yeah. And it actually doesn't work in the book mm-hmm. and she gets pregnant. Um, and interestingly, I, um, I, I think that's a real thing too. Like, look, I mean, like the the actual pill now with science doesn't work 100% of the time. So like these teas definitely didn't work all the time. Um, right. But I texted, I texted Lisa and I, I sort of said like, do you, am I missing something else? Like, have you written this in other books? Cause you know, Lisa's always, we've talked about this before about Lisa's like talismans and Lisa's yes. really like fascinated with the history of stuff. And she'll get really interested in like the history of like land management. And then suddenly that's like a huge piece of a book. So I asked her and she actually reminded me, and I had forgotten this, that in Devil in Winter, um, Evie asks about pregnancy and Sebastian says, like, there are all these ways, like he sort of articulates a number of different ways that you can That's right. use contraception. And he brings up the use of, um, hang on, I'm going to pull up, I'm going to pull it up. Uh, he brings up the use of, uh, quote, little charms, which were, Lisa just said to me today, um, usually gold or silver or sometimes lead and which is ah. <laughs> um but they were intracervical and sometimes even intrauterine devices that like a pre IUD yeah dang like so the idea that these things are on the like Lisa Kleypas setting this on the page Jane Feather setting this on the page is a real dialogue in the 90s about how the converse, like how women, how this is women's work. Like contraception yeah. is women's work. I mean, yeah, sure. There is no male birth control pill, and there's a reason for it, right? Like, sure. First of all, you know, it, it unfortunately it is our work to make sure we don't get pregnant. People with uteruses are responsible with make sure making sure that we don't get pregnant, which is problematic in in an immense way, but reality. 
Yeah, well, and it, but it's also because thousands of years of the patriarchy have made it so, right? Of course. <laughs> well, and I would think too, like back in old historicals, like about French letters, right? Like oh, I, the French letters. How disgusting. did I? I mean, I totally had to like figure that out from context. There was no Wikipedia. There was no Urban Dictionary, <laughs> right? Like, and they all have like bows on them and like ribbons, and you're like, what the fuck is this? And then what was amazing is like I. I oh, I can't believe this is the first time we're ever going to talk about harlots on this podcast because I am in love with Harlots, the show on Hulu, mm, okay. um, which is set in a bordello in um, the 1700s. It's like Bordello Wars, but the set, it's in the 1700s. It's amazing. It's super feminist. It has a full female writing staff, a full female, a female showrunner, um, female directors. Like the cast is something like 98% women, the speaking cast. Like it's very intersectional. There are queer characters. There are characters of color. It's, it's amazing. If you haven't watched Harlots, you should. Um, but it's set in a Bordeaux and it's the first time I ever saw anybody, any historical, anything show a French letter the way French letters are, which is hard. They're dried skin and they have to be soaked in water to use them. I mean, like you guys, show notes are really going to be rich this week because we'll, I'll (laughs) link to, we'll, Jen and I will work on them together and we'll link to everything. But like, basically, um, a French letter is... It's just a, it's like, imagine a dried, like, sausage casing. That's literally what it is. Tied, it's in te- sheep's intestine. It's tied on one end with, like, a string as tight as possible. But it can't be tied until it's softened. So, like, yeah, you'd have to soak, you couldn't just, like, grab a condom and go. You had to soak right. it for, I don't know how long, 45 minutes, an hour? I don't know. I don't know how long it takes. Let's say an hour. <laughs> 220, 221, whatever it takes. It's Sorry. like that scene in um, The Princess Bride where they're like, don't go in swimming for at least an hour. <laughs> so imagine Carol Kane, like, as your friend yeah. and bordello owner. But the, you know, like, the, and that shit doesn't work either. Like, tying the end yeah. of, a, of a sheep's intestine with a bit of string does not protect you from pregnancy. <laughs> Which brings us back to... You gotta figure out how to manage pregnancy. You and I have been reading long enough that we watched the condom evolution happen in romance. So much. You know, it's funny because part of me is like, I don't know. I don't know where I I saw it. I don't know if these were conversations I overheard with people. This was pre-social media. But I remember when, like, people started sort of saying, like, you need to have your characters talk about safe sex. This has to be a conversation that happens before they get into bed. And I remember people being like, oh, but it's going to ruin the vibe. Like, and, and yet... Like, do you remember this? I mean, yeah. this all happened, right? There's still people. Not long ago, a a pretty big author said, you know, publicly, like, let's just all agree that my characters are all clean and are having safe sex because I don't want to write condoms anymore. Which, yeah. look, fine. It's a... <sighs> It's a bit of like a, you know, I don't I don't write contemporaries, but it's a bit of a like, I imagine it's yeah. a bit of like, oh, now we have to pause, pause now for a condom break. But like, some people do it really great, first of all. Yeah. And second of all, it's just good sense, everyone. One of the most interesting conversations I had on Twitter, though, was that um, gay men now can take prep. Right, which is essentially instead of using condoms. Yes. I've seen ad for ads for these on this on TV. 
one of the things that's like really interesting is like that can be part of your like your grinder profile or whatever if you're on prep and like you and in order to keep on it you have to be tested i think every like a, every month or whatever i i will get these details right in show notes and so you know one of the things is like in gay romance that that like sort of conversation might be changing because it's essentially part of the like part of the scene already. Yeah. So it was really interesting to me how even the rules for like um like male female romances might be different from gay romances or lesbian romances in terms of like that safe sex conversation because the way like the essentially the ways we can protect ourselves from sexually transmitted diseases and from pregnancy are so different than they were when Jane Feather was writing this historical, right, in 1996. Right. So, and I just think that's really interesting. The contraception, the sort of putting on a condom is so normalized now, I notice it if it's not there. Yeah, in contemporaries, for sure. I mean, in historicals, like, I've never, I've never written a condom in a book. No, of course. Um, And I, partially that's because of you know, it's because of sheepskin and soaking and <laughs> all that. But I mean, like Elizabeth Hoyt has written condoms. Um, Lisa uses has used like half a lemon. I want to say yeah. or like a brandy soak sponge. Um, so like there are certainly contraception becomes a part of it. And then pulling out, I think, is one that happens in historical. Yeah, I've right? def- I've used pulling out a lot. Sure. Um, and I just, you know, assume that all my heroes are clean. Um, but the, but in, but it, again, like contemporaries have to, have to clear a different bar, I think, than historicals do. Um, and that's because of reality. That's because we live in the same world as those characters. Um, I think it's really interesting. Look, we're doing a whole podcast about Cressley Cole. Cress, nobody does, um, birth control like yeah. Cressley does, um, where literally Valkyries have to eat. You know, demons have a seal. Like, there are just, there's so many ways that Cressley tackles contraception in, like, a important, interesting And fertility, way. right? And yeah, fertility. absolutely. Like, it's really coded into the world, but in a way that often women are in charge of versus women being, like, victimized by. Well, and that's classic Cressley, right? On brand. Where do you want to go from here, Jen? I mean, I want us to talk about miscarriages, and I want us to talk about abortion. Well, let's talk about abortion because so I brought this okay. up early in the early in the episode. But aside from those early drafts of yeah. like you could just you could drink a thing and it would <laughs> magically wave away the problem. Yeah, um, we don't have that in contemporaries anymore. I mean, we've never had that in contemporaries. And again, it's because the bar is higher, right? You have to clear right. a higher bar when it comes to contraception. Um, but we have a couple of problematic things that happen in contemporaries. And we have a couple of, and we have yeah. started to really see an evolution. I think like we have seen that normalization of condoms. And I want to say, I want to give a nod to the normalization of plan B. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about Plan B? Yeah, I would love to talk about Plan B. So it's really interesting because in that list of, like, 15 books, it wasn't, like, 15 books where an abortion happened. I think there were, like, a handful. Yeah, five or six. Yeah, and then there was sort of another group where um, the heroines used Plan B. And 
One of them I read um, is by an author named uh, by an author Melanie Green, who I actually know from the tournament of books. Hi, Melanie, um, and she's written a book called Role of a Lifetime, and I read it today, and is really interesting because the heroine um, Rachel is a single like a single mother, but their divorced father is in the picture, but he's real he's a real jerk. He doesn't pay his child support on time. He doesn't always, you know, their daughters too pick her up or drop her off on time, and Rachel's like kind of financial stress, but also, um, you know, she's worried enough about him that she doesn't want him having her address, right? So she has like a very guarded relationship with him. Um, and he has this big Greek American family. And so there's like a lot of family obligations and she ends up dating her ex's boss. This guy, Theo, is the hero. But they they get together, and it's kind of like an, just like an affair, like very casual, and they have sex, like, the first time, and then, like, a week or two later, they're together again, and the condom breaks. And I will tell you, the scene is so matter-of-fact. And they're just, it's just like this interlude. They had an hour or two to be together. And he says to her, okay, you go pick up your daughter, Hannah, and you go put her to bed. And I will go to the pharmacy and I'll pick up the emergency contraception. And then I'll meet you back at your house and you can take it. And it was, and she's like, great, sounds like a plan. And I love the detail. Like, you know, sometimes authors just get that one detail right. And here's what it is. He looked it up on his phone before going into, like, the drugstore mm-hmm. because he wanted to know what it looked like. He wanted to get the right thing. Yes. <gasps> That's dreamy. It was. He buys the name brand and not the generic because he really wants her to understand that he was taking this seriously. Oh. And then when he gets, and then this part's actually kind of romantic. <laughs> I mean, again, like, oh God, you're such a romance reader. No, what wait, are you listen say? to this. Listen to this. He says to her, I want to stay. I want to stay overnight. I'm worried. I'm, you know, what if, you know, it can be painful. You can have cramping. Your daughter's here. And she's like, okay, but I called my friend, so I don't want you to stay. And he's like, okay. But oh. he wanted to. And I'm oh. sorry. That's fucking romantic, no, everybody. It is. It's perfect. It's nobility. Yeah. It's heroic nobility, right? Yeah. I've said a thousand times that the heroes in every, every hero in a romance novel has to be a king. They don't have to be royal, yeah. but they do have to be a king. And they have to act with yeah. nobility. And, like, that is a perfect example. That guy is a king of Dwayne Reed. Yeah. We're kidding. <laughs> That's a New but York drugstore. But a king of Walgreens. <laughs> yeah, right? Of CVS. But here's my point. Like, yes, it's like a small moment in the book, and then that's it. It's not a big deal. They don't talk about no, it again. Because it's really, it, it really yes. shouldn't be. It's a pill yes. that you took after you had sex. Yes. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. And the fact that it is coded as a romantic moment to me was really meaningful in this book because what it's saying is this is a decision like we made together, right? It's partnership. Yes. Look, romance novels are about finding equal partnership, about standing shoulder to shoulder with somebody who you want to spend the rest of your life with, right? Happily ever after in a romance novel involves partnership. And We have seen over the years a whole lot of books about partnership around pregnancy, partnership around babies. Like the secret baby trope is about noble men who, quote, do the right thing and marry the girl. Right. And and are and are solid, sound partners in a relationship. And this is also 
really wonderful partnership. It's we're in this together. You are not wholly responsible for not getting pregnant. I'm responsible too. And like, that's real sexy. It was. I, and you know what? I think it's, it, it, (laughs) and that's why I think like our conception, that first time you saw a condom and it felt fumbling and awkward and weird, right? Like, no, because it's like us saying, it's, it's the the couple saying our safety is important. Your health and safety is important to me. And this is the same thing, right? I would really love, and I, I'm, I'm going to text, I'm going to text, I'm going to tweet at Bowling Green and see if the guy, the people there know, but I would really love it. If you're a listener and you can sort of think back to your old school experiences, Mm. I'd really love to know who started this condom thing. Yeah. Because they were not on the page in those early contemporaries. No, they weren't. Never. Who? When did that happen? Yeah. Can somebody find a date? I would guess it has something to do with the AIDS epidemic. Yeah, it must have, right? I mean, this is this is me like super spitballing, but I would be very interested. I'm also going to ask Kelly Faircloth at Jezebel if she's done any research on this, um, because I feel like somebody out there knows where condoms came from when that romance. started. Yeah, right. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they have been there since the beginning. Maybe Mills and Boone has been using them forever. I don't. I felt like there was a sea change, though, and I remember it, it happening. Right? And I remember the conversations where people are like, "No way!" And then it just happened. And I feel like this Melanie Green book to me was the perfect example of how Plan B can be used the same way, right? Well, like, that Ruby Lang book, um, yes, uh, which is we we recommended it on an on a another podcast here, but Ruby when Lang's we did best friend sibling, right? Clean breaks. Um, the heroine is an OBGYN, um, and she not only does she counsel a character on the page about abortion, the condom breaks. Ruby yeah. reminded us uh, today that the con- a condom breaks in that book, and um, the—I'm just getting it up. I'm just pulling it up, and the hero basically says, like, I'll marry you, <laughs> and the heroine is like, um— no, thank you, first yeah. of all. Second of all, like, I'm a professional human being and and also a fucking OB, and we're going to get some emergency contraception and it's going to be fine, right? And, um, you know, Ruby's awesome and we love her. We stand her hard here. And I think the other side of the contraception question, though, is because Jenny Holiday's whole Bridesmaids Behaving Badly series has women dealing with these issues in one way or another. So one of the friends has, like, really severe endometriosis, and her period is a plot point, right? Like, and ha- like how debilitating her pain is. And I've talked about one of those series. She then does get pregnant and has to, like, really consider, like, I never thought I'd be a mother. Is this what I want? But Wendy, who's another friend, takes plan B. And then Jane, another one of them, is does they're going to be childless by choice. And you can only be childless by choice if you have contraception available to you. Mm-hmm. And so that is a series that artfully for all of them, like, weaves in, th- like, the, the decisions that women are making about who... Like, what they want their futures to be like, and then what, or not. And there's, and I really like that there's no, 
judgment or blaming. Like, you know, Jane not wanting kids is not really a thing that, you know, like spacing out her name, the one who is like, I would be, I would desperately love kids, but I have endometriosis. Like she's not mad that her friend doesn't want them. Right. Like it's just women with different choices and they all support each other. And I Mm -hmm. think that that whole series is really committed like Cressley, I think to really talking about contraception in a, like a really comprehensive way for different women at different points in their lives and what they want and different couples. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is, I think we, but Jen, you and I have talked so much about the fact that these body issues, these kind of endometriosis, I, my, one of my very favorite romance novels of the last few years is a really beautiful erotic friends to lovers romance called Unconventional by Isabel Love. And, Mm um, the, heroine so it's it's basically like friends with benefits like they know each other they have mutual friends they are each it's like they're the they're the marie and jess in the harry when harry met sally relationship here they're like oh got it okay um they're like the carrie fisher and uh bruno kirby characters um so and then they sort of meet through this couple this middle couple um and they have this like beneficial relationship she's divorced because um she had to have a hysterectomy when she was very young while she was married to another man and he left her because he wanted to have children and so she sort of has this sense of well there is no future there's no long-term relationship in my future because i can't have children and like that's part of a long-term future um yeah. so she has this relationship with um with Charlie, that's it. That's the hero's name. And they have this like incredibly sexy relationship that involves exhibitionism and voyeurism. You'll love that part. <laughs> um, and um, there's, there are threesomes in it. And like, it's really an, an incredibly sexy relationship. Um, and he starts to fall for her and she's so panicked by shame. Like she has yeah. such shame for this, Reality. I mean, like, this happens to women. And she doesn't, she's, she kind of protects herself and protects herself from loving him because she's so afraid that he'll reject her because, you know, she feels in some way less than because she's had something happen to her. And he's an ultimate, and he wants kids. Like, he sort of is very open about the fact that he wants kids. And she's just like, I can't, uh, you know, that's never going to happen. We're not going to happen. And then when it finally sort of, when it's when she reveals it, when she's like, I love you, but I can't be with you because of this. I would never ask you to give up that dream to be with me. He's like, I love you. Kids are separate from this. Like kids don't you. I love kids are an, an imaginary thing. Right. Right. And they have their happily ever after. And it's really beautifully done because it's very honest. Um, yeah. You know, we have all, I mean, maybe we have not. I don't want to speak for every woman, but I feel like many, 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 many women, myself included, have felt over time sort of shame about things with our bodies that we can't control. Yeah. And this book does that beautifully and is feels very authentic and honest and also super sexy. Like, again, I'd use that 
like phrase earlier that like sometimes your body betrays you one. So I want to return to talking about abortion maybe at the end, because there's one book I think that's really interesting by Melanie Johnson, but I want to talk about miscarriage first Mm. because I do feel like, and you have written really one of my, and I, you know, I, I'm not here to stand for Sarah McLean all the time, but <laughs> we do. We don't stand for me that often. <laughs> but Day Day of the Duchess is probably one of my top three favorite romances ever. Well, that's very kind. And I think the but miscarriage is something that romance does put on page. Abortion, something a little different. Miscarriage, it, it happens a lot. And I and I actually wrote a whole piece once about it because I was just really curious, like, what is it that's happening on the page? And, like, not every miscarriage is sort of doing the same thing. It's, like, mining different, like, emotional, like, depths. So I want you to talk about Day of the Duchess, but, like, we can talk. And I, I mentioned the Piper Hugo I book. should add, it. Day of the Duchess is has a stillbirth in it. I mean, it's a, yeah, it is, it's obviously, it's it's a type of miscarriage, but it's a lot. It's very intense. It does happen. It happens right at the very beginning of the book. I know that it, it has, I want, I just want to very strongly content warn this for anybody who, who might have trouble with stillbirth as a plot. Um, I mean, I, that book was very personal for me. I have not had a stillbirth, but. I have had pregnancy issues, and um, I was working through some stuff. I wanted to write a book that was about women and the way that we relate to our bodies as failures. And that's because I was going through some stuff. Um, I have had... I. I've had trouble with pregnancy. I've had, um, I had trouble breastfeeding. I have felt a lot of shame about what my body can and cannot do. Um, and I, um, hate that, um, so many women, one in four women, um, one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage and, or stillbirth. And the reality is that we are trained and conditioned to believe that that is a malfunction of our body. And the reality right. is, is that when 25% of something, when 25% of times something happens, that's not a malfunction. It's just, it's just a thing that happens. Yeah. Um, and I hate that women are ashamed by that. And I hate that it is so emotional and that it is so personal and that it is so private and that we keep it to ourselves. And we struggle with so much anger and frustration. Yeah. And I, that's all in this book. I mean, that's what this book is. And yeah, well, and I think the reader's experience is always really different. And Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that book like moved me, right. Is like, not just because of the groveling, but because of, like, her journey. You and love a grovel. I do love a grovel. But it is an epic grovel, I will admit. Yeah. That. Yeah, it is. But there's this part in particular where she's, like, basically, she knows something is wrong, right? And you, you've, it's like, I've called it a miscarriage, but you're, it's like really a stillbirth, right? Yeah, she's 
very far along. Yeah. And she knows something is wrong. And to me, there's this, like, the most chilling kind of scene in this book, and it is probably within the first 20 pages, maybe even earlier, is she, like, knocks on the door, right? They're they're separated. And the, the you know, whoever answers the fucking door, the footman or whatever. And she feels like she has to say there's something wrong with the baby in order to get in the door. Like, that's what I remember, right? He's like, the like something's wrong. And, he, and, and, it, and she's like, like with the air, essentially. And I remember thinking, like, not only is it this failure of her body, but it was this, like, devastating moment where she knew that this baby was more important than she was. Mm-hmm. In terms of, like, how she was going to, like, get the help she needed. Mm-hmm. And in that way, I guess things have not really changed that significantly. But, I, no. like, to me, it was this, uh, like, heart-rending moment. And romance, I know, like, delivers those moments. But one of the things I have said to people about this book is, like, it's the rare romance that starts with the low moment. And it's, like, the lowest of low moments. And then we have to see them recover. And I think it's brilliant, and not just because you're sitting here, but... (laughs) Well, you're very kind. I mean, I do want to say one thing about that book, because it's a... And you know that I struggle with it. Um, Serafina, who is the main character of that book, she's the heroine of that book, believes she's barren. She's told after she loses the child by the doctor, this sort of male doctor who's been brought in as, like, a voice of patriarchy, that she'll never have children again. And so, um, and she she has a very specific condition. The Medically, her stillbirth, her stillbirth birth is not coincidental. It's medical. It's a condition that actual real human females have. Um, and she, um, she ends up believing that she is barren and at the end and I'm yeah. going to spoil the ending of this book there they have children yeah um and they have them in the epilogue and they have um more than one because my I realized that I couldn't write I wanted to write a birth I wanted to write a live birth and um I couldn't write the next live birth because it would be full of fear oh and, yeah absolutely and terror right so I had to I had to give them more than one child um, in that in that epilogue, and in, I ended up giving them lots of children. Um, but the, I have received letters, and I know that there is a lot of um, there's a lot of discussion in Romance Landia about this um, the sort of magic child that comes at the end yeah. for a barren couple. And I went back and forth, and there are two versions of that epilogue: one where they have children, and one where they do not. And we, um, my editor and I went over it again and again and again, and I actually just pulled the trigger on the epilogue literally the last possible day before it went to print. And I gave them children instead of not giving them children. And I did it for lots of reasons, and I can tell you they were happy either way. Um, And I probably did it for me more than for them. Yeah. Like it was this Day of the Dutch is an incredibly personal book for me for many, many reasons. Um, and so for me, it was really important to me that that experience happen on the page um, and that they have happily ever after with a with children. But I want to say that there is there was no reason why they couldn't have happily ever after without children. And 
and it's funny because I know people struggle with that. I don't. I never struggle with it in a historical because I feel like some quack told her she couldn't have kids again based on what, you know? Yeah. And whereas in a contemporary, I will say the, like, all of a sudden I just got pregnant because I was with the right man plot. Right. The magic, magic sperm. Yeah. That part, I'm like, meh, you can stop that. It's 2019, right? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the baby epilogue is, it's a lot. It's something that we all sort of need to talk about because it is sort of heteronormative and there's, you know, there's a lot about it that is, that needs to be unpacked. And I think it's a conversation that it's healthy for us to have as romance, as people who talk about romance. Um, But I also acknowledge that like, I love a baby in an epilogue. So, you know, but I also have a baby and I like babies. So whatever. That's a personal problem. If you know, if your choice is, it's, your body, your choice. Your marriage, your choice. Your partnership, your choice. Um, and that's all we're just trying to get at. Yeah, there's a lot of books with miscarriages. Yeah, I mean, I I want to just shout out my favorite Julia Quinn novel, which is uh, The Secret Diaries of Miss Miranda Cheever. may not be Miss Miranda Cheever, but The Secret Diaries of Miss of Miranda Cheever. There's a miscarriage in that book that is devastating. I honestly believe that is Julia Quinn's best book. It is... Yeah. Emotional and intense and the miscarriage is so important. Um, but again, it's told through the lens of the heroine's experience. Right. And I know you have thoughts about this. Yeah, we've talked about that. Women, if it's happening to your body, it's your experience. You own it. Right. Yeah, I believe that. I totally do. And I think it, it also makes sense to me that romance would like, I don't know, like mine miscarriage as a possible topic because it is so personal and because so much of romance is about, about hope and about, and right. So like exploring the ways in which women like experience failure, but then like bounce back and figure out who they are after that. I think that for many women, and, and I also think you're right. Like it's not, so it's very hard to talk about but then in a book, it gives you a way to, like, have that experience, right? Like, you're, you're with a you're, – this heroine becomes your friend, right, who's going through this experience. Yeah. And I think that that is something that it's a way for us to sort of collectively share our, like, miscarriage stories kind of with each other. Sure. You know, loss of a child is normalized in romance. And, and it, it – that's valuable. That's valuable for every woman, every one of that 24% or 25% of women of pregnancies. Um, uh, what's interesting is that 25% of women before they turn 25, before they turn 45 in the United States will have an abortion. Yeah. And we have not normalized abortion. No, no, we sure have not. As a genre. Yeah. Here's the bad way we've normalized it. Oh, I hate this way. I do too, and I'm real fucking over <laughs> it, which is the hero has been traumatized by oh. a bad ex who had a an abortion that he didn't want her to have. Yeah, he, she either didn't tell him, and then she told him to stick it to him, or yeah. she didn't tell him she was pregnant, and then he found out. Yeah, like it's real bad. Fuck that <laughs> noise burn it with fire that plot really needs to die and you know what those are plots actually too that have been around a really long time in one way or another i want to i'm going to confess something which is 20 years ago when those plots were everywhere oh yeah i liked that 
because I was like, oh, it again, it sort of says like it's a code, it's code codifying like nobility of the hero, right? Like, yeah, it's codifying um, maturity. Rep- readiness for commitment, yes. willingness to partner, uh, the ability to be a decent father and like take responsibility. These are all valuable tools. Like some deep well of emotional feeling too, sure. right? Sure, sure. It was it's humanity. It's a hero's humanity coded in yeah. there. I get it. It's great shorthand, but at the same time, like it's real problematic right shorthand. And I feel like you know, it, for me, it was, like, pre- and post-Smith College. <laughs> Pre-Smith College, Sarah was like, oh, I love these, like, evil abortion storylines. <laughs> and after Smith College, I was like, no, absolutely not. Abortion's yeah. for everyone. <laughs> and I think it also really, I mean, here's the other thing, though. It doesn't just code something for the hero. It codes something for the heroine, right? Which is that she is committed to, like, mothering and family. It's a very patriarchal way of, like, making sure we understand that this is a good one. Right, that this heroine is going to be different or better or uh, and better, right, and all those things mm-hmm. because she would never do this. She would never do that to him. That's nonsense. A lot of people have very ordinary abortions in marriages that are otherwise happy. A book I really recommend that is not a romance is called Scarlet A, which is the ethics, law, and politics of ordinary abortion. And this woman made, I saw her at the Chicago Humanities Festival, and she was this fascinating speaker where she was like, we have like these sort of like myths, these like sort of abortion stories we tell, and then when we talk to real women who've had abortions, none of them are true. And right. it is it is a great, great book. But I remember um, we've talked about our love for, like, kind of category romances in the 80s. And one of, like, a series I really loved was this series by Barbara Boswell where these brothers all married these sisters. Oh, I love it already. I know. The <laughs> Ramses and the Bradys. And here's the thing. Oh, in my one God. of them, and I really remember this, in one of them, Erin is the heroine, and she has, like, kids already. She's Of course, she's still, like, she's, like, 24 in her, you know, she got pregnant right after high school and got married, and now the dad's out of the picture, and um, she gets with this new man, and she they're not using birth control because he thinks he's barren because from his previous marriage, right, like, they weren't able to have kids. And, of course, now all of a sudden Erin's pregnant, and he says, like, you've been cheating on me. They run into his ex-wife, like, at the mall, and the ex-wife is like, I'm just so glad that this happened. You know, it wasn't that I was barren. It was that basically, like, his sperm and my, like, bad body chemistry, some 80s bullshit. But I remember, I vividly remember this plot and and how angry, like, rightfully so, Aaron was at this ex-wife for, like, not ever really being honest with the hero, right? But it's also super problematic to imagine that somehow she had medical knowledge that, like, he didn't, right? It's all no. so crazy. And it's this, right, the bad ex who mm-hmm. either withheld or aborted a child or whatever is so, like, I... It's like an automatic, like, first of all, I'm not reading your book anymore, and I'm probably not reading you anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, certainly, you know, somebody on Twitter, I, I sort of ranted a little bit about this on Twitter yesterday, and somebody on Twitter came forward and was like, in the 90s, I wrote this book. And I was like, in the 90s? 
you, it was a different time. Like we all have to have room to grow, right? Like we have room. We, I, I talk all the time about the fact that like I've been writing for 10 years. What I wrote in 2009 is not representative necessarily of what I, what I write now in 2019. And like, that's just life. Like we have to have room to grow. Sure. And that's romance. And that's right. romance, right? We're moving too quickly. We're iterating on society the whole time. That's fine. What I want is for us to, as writers, as responsible citizens of the genre, for us to just try and do better. Yeah. That's all we can ask for is that everybody try and do better. Can I just have a fun moment? Yes. I haven't done a lot of fun moments, but I want to give a shout out to the only vasectomy I can think of, Jennifer. Um, which I had not actually thought about until you told that crazy story about the <laughs> brothers marrying the sisters and the, the the like how he thought he was barren and then he thought she was cheating on him and that, that the is 80s. And, I mean they also owned a mall so it's all bad for sure. them now of course they did yeah the Ramsey Park Mall the what the, their last name is Ramsey the Ramsey Park Mall I'm just oh telling you. you I actually bought these books on Amazon because I like right I was like I gotta have them sure seminal texts them. so um uh, speaking of seminal texts I was like <laughs> <laughs> all right I love you so much right now air high five so okay Jude Devereaux who everyone knows is, like, my seminal text. Like, the black line is yeah. the beginning of my time in romance. Um, Jude Devereaux wrote a family saga. Uh, every book, like, every book Jude Devereaux has ever written has been a Montgomery book. Um, and they have this, like, intense Montgomery, this Montgomery, like, family tree. And the Montgomerys have a lot of twins. A lot. A lot. You're making a funny face. Yeah, no, I'm just curious about them. Like, tell me more. Okay. They have a lot like, of where twins. where is this all going? FYI, everybody, Jen and I have a twin interstitial coming, so I'm not going to give you too much information about the Montgomery twins, because I'm sure we'll talk about the full twin experience then, but this is a good one. So at some point, so Sweet Liar is this contemporary, like, wacky, kind of time travely, ghosty, like, St. Valentine's Day massacre, Chicago period, <laughs> like, sure. weird... There's a lot packed into this book, Sweet Liar. And, and the hero's name is Michael. I don't remember the heroine's name because it doesn't matter. Michael <laughs> is a twin. And he's like, he has a lot. There's a lot. Michael is pretty dreamy and weird and kind of amazing. Um, but there's this legend in the Montgomery family um, of one of the like cousins uh, got. He he. They're so virile. All the men, all the men in the Montgomery family. I mean, virility is like also a big piece of romances of a, of a time, right? And they're so virile. And one of the men had a vasectomy because his wife was like, "I've had too many of your fucking babies. Like, we're not doing this anymore. You're getting a vasectomy." And so he went off and he got a vasectomy and he came back and then they had sex and she got pregnant. And he was convinced she had cheated on him. And she was like, fuck you. I'm getting a paternity test for this baby, <laughs> which she did. And she was like, see, it is your baby. You're just too virile for vasectomies. <laughs> dead over here oh my god if i remember correctly he buys her like a porsche and like a 10 carat diamond ring to apologize 
For basically having super Montgomery sperm. For just having crazy Jude Devereaux sperm. <laughs> oh, God. You guys. That's some good stuff right there. That really You know, is. but that's the perfect example of, like, some crazy shit in a romance novel that, like, definitely coded some real problematic, like, virility issues into my life. However, oh, for sure. I really love that a vasectomy was on the page, and I love that the, he- the heroine was like, fuck you, we're getting a paternity test. Like, it, it was great. This isn't that actually is the heroine of that book, but whatever. It's a referenced. It's a story that's referenced in there, and I like that the vasectomy was just, like, codified, like... This is a thing that happens, even though in this particular case it didn't work because he has super sperm. Well, I mean, hello, Sarah. (laughs) But obviously, he's a Montgomery. So stay tuned for our twin episode and more Montgomery shenanigans. Um, What else? I want to end this episode by talking about this Melanie Johnson book. So I don't know if we're ready for it yet. Let's do it, because we're over an hour now. We're over an hour. Like, everyone's like, oh my god, stop being so angry. No, never. Um, here's the thing. One of the things that was really interesting is when you asked on Twitter about abortion books, like there really were a handful, right? So there's a book by Jenny Trout, uh, one of the Tiffany Rice, uh, in Nora, I guess, one of the original Sinners books. But I want to talk about this book by Melanie Johnson called Once Upon a Bad Boy. And it doesn't actually come out until June 25th. So I don't want to spoil it entirely, but this is one of the few books like among a very small list of books we could have where the, like a heroine has an abortion and and in this case it was something that the heroine and hero were like teenage dating dated as teenagers um they broke up it was very sudden he broke up with her and then we get it's 10 11 years later so now you know they're almost 30 and one of the things that's really fascinating about this book in terms of like that the exploration of her journey like the the abortion is she does not have any regrets at all about i mean she has moments of like what ifism right what if what if i would have made a different choice mm-hmm. she doesn't have any regrets she doesn't feel any guilt she doesn't feel like she did anything wrong but what she has done is kept it a secret for 10 years because women in our society aren't just don't talk about their abortion sure. And so that the pressure of keeping that all inside is something that has really like right it's it's not the what she did that's the problem it's to keep the pressure to keep it a secret. Mm-hmm. And this is something that only her grandmother knows. I don't want to spoil the book or like necessarily talk too much about like why it happened. I was I will be honest I was really on the fence with it. I I I'm kind of ready for the heroine who's like, fuck yeah, I had abortion, and we just all move on, right? It's as matter-of-fact as taking plan B, but... Yeah, but is that really authentic? Well, I think we certain. Well, according to the Scarlet A book, it is. No, 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 I don't mean that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, is it authentic for us to just sort of, for, for many of us to step yes. forward and say, like, yeah, fuck yeah, I had an abortion. I mean... Right. <sighs> This is the problem, right? Like, we keep, we've we spent the entire episode talking about how we keep our bodies secret. Right? Yes. Like, we protect, we, and it's not, prote- it's, I mean, in part, it's protection, right? Like, nobody wants, to, I spent the last two days, like, you know, fighting people on the mm-hmm. internet. Like, <laughs> not everybody has the bandwidth or the desire yeah. to do that work. Um, but the the truth is, like, as long as this is a poli- as long as 
our bodies, as long as the uterus is politicized. Yeah. Um, speaking up like that is a risk. And it's yeah. a risk that we should not expect any woman to have to take. Like, absolutely. It's a risk that if you are willing to take it, Jen and I are here for you. Like, we, I will, I, Sarah, will fight you, will fight for you. I will fight alongside you. But we you. shouldn't insist that people have to. Yeah. And I think, like, there right. is a certain sense, like, look, it takes a lot to get past um, codified, like, in, ingrained shame. Yeah. Right. And that is not to say that anybody should feel shame about an abortion. That is to say that like many, many people in society expect you to. And that's and like we, patriarchy sucks. Yeah. Like, well, and, you know, a really powerful piece I saw on Jezebel today was sort of like, OK, so for the past two days, everyone, you know, lots of people are women are getting out there and sharing their abortion stories. But. We're not changing hearts and minds. The people who are closed to this, the people who, who you know, think that it's you know, who are who are pro forced birth, those people don't care about our stories. No. And I ended up finding, therefore, um, Sadie is the heroine of this Melanie um, Johnson book. I therefore, like, at first, I was sort of like, oh, I want you to like feel less conflicted, but. As the book went on, I ended up really feeling like it was an honest portrayal of, like, sort of, we all have regrets, right? And regret was, you know, it was a man she loved. It was a relationship that ended suddenly. It was, you know, now someone who's back in her life. It's a secret she kept from her best friend. It's, you know, and and I and I really found that journey to, like, her acceptance of, like, not the decision she made. She never regrets that decision, but, like, the need to hide it. Mm. And that felt, I have I will be honest with you, I have never read anything like it in romance before. Well, that is a high praise. Yeah. I mean, no matter no matter what this book is like, that's, yeah. I want to read things that we, we owe it to women to tell every possible story. We owe it to all people, right. all marginalized people to tell every possible story of happiness. And yes. that is, that's our work as yeah. writers, as, as a genre. Well, and I think one of the things I, I kept thinking about was we talk a lot about representation matters, right? Yep. Like, it is really vitally important that if you, that we're not sort of saying, like, okay, I read a, a, a this romance with a black character, now I've read romance with black characters. No, you haven't. You read one. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem with there being so few stories in romance where women have abortions is then we hang our entire, like, hopes, dreams, and needs for that book, that story in romance, on this one book. Right. Right? Or these three books. Mm-hmm. And that is why we need more of them. We need more. I mean, the fact that Jen is right. I mean, the, I I said fifteen books at the beginning. There there are maybe fifteen books on that list. Many of them are Plan B. Some of them have no abortion at all, but have a doctor in them. Like, if so, if we're talking about fewer fewer than ten, less than ten books on this list, hive minded from our romance Twitter people, and old school romance, uh, the book club that I host on Facebook, which you can join if you'd like to. We'll put it in show notes. Yeah, we'll put it in show notes. Um, Like, that's an incredible hive mind. And if we can only come up with this number, like, there aren't that many more. That's right. There really just aren't, I'm sure of. 
I mean, every, if again, we go back to one quarter of all American women under the age of 45 have had an abortion. And there are, that is millions of stories. And we're not, and what is happening? I mean, it just takes us back to that original question, which is why in this genre that has made, carved out such important domestic space, and I say domestic as a, like, female-centered, right, like, women-centered space, as a genre, as a matter of course, centering the female gaze and female identity and female politics, right, or women's politics, I should say, how have we never, how have we not come to a place where... There are at least, you know, yeah, 250 we can point to. Exactly. I mean, and that's the part where when you see how small the sample size is, right? And, you know, this Melanie Johnson book, I'm about, we're, you're going to hear about it next week. It's going to be available a month later and we will signal boost it, you know, to high heaven yeah, we once will. it actually comes out. Because I do think that I found... Sadie's journey, right, as like an individual character and her moments of like sadness and her her sense that she couldn't. I mean, I found it all very moving. And I thought, you know what? We deserve to see a woman who's like, yeah, I kind of have some regrets. And sometimes I wish what if and I still know I did the right thing. And it was still my decision to make. Well, because bodies are nuanced. Feelings are complicated. Like, this is not an easy discussion, which is clear in the in the world. And it's why Jen and I rage so hard when anybody comes at this with a black and white answer. Like, this right. is a hard conversation to have. And all I think I'm saying is, like, I stand with women being able to make their own choices about their own bodies. And that's really all. That's it, right? Well, and I think that that's why, like... We know we started out talking about trans men and trans women and and like sort of bodies and who we are. But like, if you believe in bodily autonomy for women, then I think you have to believe in bodily autonomy for everybody. And I think you have to look at people and say, like, I want you to be who you are in the world, yeah. and I want the world to accept you and that journey for what it is. And if romance cannot be there for that in every way, then romance is not doing what it needs to do to support the people who need it the most. Right. If it's the genre of hope and happiness, it has to be the genre of hope and happiness for all of us. Yeah. No exceptions. (laughs) No exceptions. No. Except Nazis. Except Nazis. Yeah. But I mean, and that's the part where I find this conversation and these books, you know, and I know we talked about like probably 50 different books today and we didn't even talk about all the books that we could have. But I mean, I think we were really interested in exploring like what is it that romance is doing really well, right? Romance is talking about miscarriage. It's talking about grieving and loss. You know, romance is talking about condoms and safe sex, Romance is talking about preventing pregnancy, but it's not really talking at all about abortion. And this is about to be a right that many of us are not going to have access to anymore. Mm -hmm. And that fear is something I would like to see romance 
like normalizing for ourselves as women and for readers. And I get I'm not a writer, right? I don't have to like make a living off my book selling and putting my kids through college out. You know, I know those risks are out there, but I hope that we all get behind Melanie Johnson's book and prove that there is a market for like nuanced stories about women who make hard decisions for themselves Mm -hmm. or easy decisions for themselves, but they make those decisions for themselves. Right. People deserve to have body autonomy. Period. Um, That said, what I do want to add is that we are, I think, and this is me sort of looking into my romance crystal ball, I think this, we could be, this could have started a sea change among writers thinking about the fact that we don't, we limit, we create space to talk about bodies our bodies and how they work. Um, And like you said, we create space to talk about sorrow and shame around the way our bodies work, but we don't, we have limit, we have stopped. We've come to a stopping point when we get to this piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Um, And I think a lot, a lot of romance novelists, I mean, just in the last two days, I've heard from so many writers who acknowledge that they've never tackled it, but they want to. Yeah. And so I would like to think that a year from now, we're going to start seeing in books a little more. I don't think we're ever going to see it in every book. Like, I don't think we're, that is not, and that's not what I'm asking for, but I think we're going to see more and more and more of these stories on the page. And that's all we're asking for. We're just asking for us all to just think a little more carefully about representing that choice that a lot of us have made. And, and I mean, a lot. I just, I gave an interview about this today, and I just feel like I said at some point, you know, everyone, everyone knows a woman who has, who has done this. Everyone has interacted with a person who has done this. You may not know, and nobody is asking anyone to risk, like I said earlier. If it's not safe for you to share that story, either emotionally or like physically or for whatever reason, like mm-hmm. I, like no one's going to push anybody into the limelight, right? But romance then is a way like miscarriage where we can share our right. stories in like, right? There's truth in fiction. I say that to my students all the time, right? Romance is a private space. It yes. is. It's yeah. a private space for people who read romance. And it's and it's so far removed from, like, the prying eyes of the rest of the world. If we can't have this conversation here in our private space, yeah. where can we have this conversation safely? Right. Um, and, look, the reality is ugh, that readers, there are going to be readers who don't like it. Yeah. And well. so it's going to take risk and it's it's going to take um, bravery and... I really am looking forward to the to the books that come from it. Yeah. Well, and you know what? I think your crystal ball is right on because when I think about the books that I talked about tonight, like specifically, right? Jenny Holiday's books, um, that whole series, uh, the Melanie Green book, the Melanie Johnson book, like these are books that are all 2018 or later. Yeah. Ruby Lang. Right, Ruby Lang. I mean, so we are already, like, we are talking about old books, but then a lot of the books that we are, like, talking about right now are right now. Mm-hmm. So we these are really, like, the women who are putting these things on the page. They're the forerunners. And if we support these books and buy these books and show that there's a market for these stories, then we, were, we, we will get more of them. 
And mm-hmm. I know that there are books that we missed. We tried to cast the widest possible net. Well, we've only had 48 hours. So <laughs> we're going to, I mean, I'm committed to reading all those books on the list. Um, yeah. And and so, you know, follow follow us. Uh, follow me on Twitter. Follow the Fate of Mates Twitter account and mine. And I'll, you know, tweet about the ones that are, you know, great. And hopefully we'll get more. If you have a book, listeners, that... Uh, con- that if you have read a book where there's an abortion on the page, please, please wreck us. Um, you know, gr- good abortion wreck rep. We want that. Um, tell us about books that are that have meant something to you. As, you know, as representing kind of body autonomy and and bo- the body politic. Um, we're interested in that. I think um, Jen and I especially are interested in how like how fertility and um, contraception and all of that lives on the page. If you know, if you can point to an early use of a condom in a contemporary, we want to hear all about Definitely that. Definitely want to hear all about that. I'm going to do some research and, you know, follow again, follow Fated Meets on Twitter, follow us on Instagram. We'll put everything there. I mean, and I think that's it. Like we are like, it's a call to action, right? Like, because we know that when you change people's, worldview and their empathy and the way they think about like the choices we get to make and have that we change the world. Like the urgency of this isn't just like because we want you to have better books to read. It's because when we change the way we think about what our possibilities are, we change our futures. Well, that's a good place to stop, I think. You're listening to Fate of Mates, everybody. Um, follow us on Twitter, Fate of Mates. Follow us on Instagram, Fate of Mates Pod. Uh, go over to our website, fateofmates.net, and check out the show notes on your apps or over on fateofmates.net. You can leave comments there. Um, you can talk to us anytime. Leave us reviews. Um, <laughs> you know, all that good stuff. Next week, we are back with Dark Sky, another, another broken demon man he's a demon right he's yeah a winged, a winged demon and i think it's going to be very relevant and interesting conversation yeah to this one that we well cressley always is but i think this book in particular is really landing at a time where i think it's going to be really interesting so go out and do something you want to do with your body today have a good night